It's the 9th of December and you're listening to Kobe Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Temur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 38th episode. Last week, we published our annual outlook, a bifurcated world. You can find it by Googling a bifurcated world. In it, we recognize that 2021 ought to be a year of leaving the pandemic behind with mass vaccinations and significant recovery of travel and tourism. But there will also be bifurcations caused by accelerated disruptions and structural factors. Now, on the positive side, we think that Asia is primed for outperformance next year. In the report, we flag three key reasons for this. First, tailwind from a favorable trade cycle. Second, strong FX buffers and savings that characterize most countries in Asia. And third, strong pull from an accelerating China. Now, but at the same time, as the title suggests, we are worried about entrenched bifurcations. These would be with regards to resource availability, pandemic response, inequality, and governance. And we think that these sort of heterogeneity would continue to create tension between and within nations in the coming years. Now, this is the season for Outlook publications, and our friends at Fitch Ratings have rolled out their Outlook too. It would be great to know how they're looking at 2021 from a ratings perspective, and to do that, we have with us Stephen Schwartz, head of Asia-Pacific Sovereigns with Fitch Ratings in Hong Kong. Stephen has been with Fitch since 2016. Previously, from 2008, Stephen served in senior research and analytical roles in Hong Kong with Merrill Lynch, BBVA, and Moody's Investor Service. Between 1992 and 2008, Steve was with the International Monetary Fund in a variety of positions covering Latin America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. Steve, welcome to Kopi Time. Tamor, good to be with you. Excellent. Uh, Steve, we will talk a lot about the macro outlook, but first, since you're based in Hong Kong, tell us how the whole pandemic management thing is going there. And also, most importantly, you know, what is the vaccine pipeline for the people of Hong Kong? Will you guys be jabbed with Western vaccines or Chinese vaccines? <laughs> well, the, uh, the, the virus uh, situation here, it's not a happy one. Um, we are in what the authorities call now our fourth wave. Um, it's, you lose track after a while. I count sort of three distinct um, bumps in, in the virus outbreak here in Hong Kong. We had the big one back in, in March, uh, followed by another one over the summer in July and August that was actually the most severe. And then in late November, it's resurged again, and it's caused quite a lot of concern to the authorities here in Hong Kong. I mean, by relative terms, the outbreak is not particularly severe in Hong Kong. We have something like 80 to 100 new cases a day. We now have cumulatively over 7,000 cases since the virus started. But they take this very seriously here in Hong Kong, uh, the legacy of SARS back in 2003, of course. Um, they act swiftly, and they have imposed new restrictions um, in the last couple of weeks, uh, restricting restaurants, public gatherings to no more than two. They've announced, uh, once again, the closure of gyms and beauty parlors and the like. Uh, so it's uh, not shaping up to be a fun holiday season here in Hong Kong. Now, on the vaccine front, it's interesting you should ask. You know, our perception is that Asia in general has been quite good at containing the virus, but maybe lagging behind the rest of the world and procuring the, the uh, vaccine. 
in a proactive way. So the authorities are saying here in Hong Kong that they may be using a, a mix of the Chinese and Western vaccines, but that we won't really expect to see the rollout of vaccines until the third quarter of 2021 at the earliest. Wow. Okay. So I think that's that's sobering to hear. And perhaps, you know, in Singapore also, we probably have to gird ourselves for a rather protracted period of vaccine rollout. Uh, just because they're rolling them out in the West today doesn't mean that it's going to make it to our shores in quince, you know, mask wearing and social distancing and travel restrictions are probably going to be around for the foreseeable future. So Steve, I don't know when I'm going to meet you in person again, but uh, we'll settle for this. Um, Steve, at Fitch Ratings, you look at a full spectrum of sovereign risks from economic fundamentals to politics. Since we started talking about the pandemic, and this is a new thing, at least in our lifetime. So how does this fit into your sovereign ratings analysis? Because it's much bigger, for, bigger of a deal than it was for SARS, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think uh, we at the rating agencies have seen anything like this. I'm certainly in Asia since the Asian financial crisis long before I was part of the uh, rating agency world. And, and then again, of course, with the global financial crisis. But this has been the most challenging crisis from a sovereign rating perspective, I think, for most longtime rating agency uh, folks. Um, we've had a record number of downgrades uh, here at Fitch. We, we've seen almost 50 downgrades this year. Uh, almost a third of our sovereign credits globally are on negative outlook as we go into 2021. Now, it's been a challenge because our ratings are ordinal um, ratings. They're relative rankings. And we're seeing pressures on all economies. We're seeing big buildups in public debt and pressure points all around. And we can't, of course, downgrade everyone. So we really have to discriminate. And what we've done is we look very carefully at the starting points, which sovereigns went into the crisis with sufficient buffers, uh, fiscal and external, to weather the crisis and, and to use those buffers by way of policy stimulus. That's number one. And number two, we look at track records. Those are very important. What is the track record of individual sovereigns in unwinding stimulus after big crises? Uh, in countries where there is a, an established track record, it gives us some confidence that after the coronavirus shock subsides, they can get their public debt trajectories back onto a stable or downward path. So that's the general sort of principles we've used to approach you know, this unprecedented crisis. Um, maybe I'll stop there and I can speak a bit more about how we actually derive the, the, the rating if you're interested. Oh yeah, very much so, please. Right. So, um, you know, I think it's a bit of a black box to many investors how we at the rating agencies come up with our ratings. Uh, we, we each have our own specific sovereign rating criteria. Uh, here at Fitch, what we use is a two-step approach. We start with what we call our sovereign rating model, which is an econometric model consisting of about 18 econometric variables covering, as you might expect, uh, structural features, things like governance, uh, the size of the economy and global GDP, per capita GDP, those are highly correlated to creditworthiness over long periods of time. So that's structural features. The second pillar is macro performance, GDP growth, 
inflation, growth volatility, those kinds of things. Thirdly, public finances, and these are very important, of course, um, fiscal deficits, public debt, the share of uh, foreign currency debt and total debt, and interest payments, those factor very prominently. And lastly, of course, is external finances, things like um, the sovereign assets and reserves, uh, the external interest burden, uh, commodity dependence. So this, we start with this econometric model that gives us a starting point uh, based on these 18 variables. But then we recognize that no single model, of course, can account for all relevant factors. You mentioned fundamentals like politics. That's not in our econometric model, except for governance, uh, where we use the World Bank indicator. So we apply, as a second stage, a qualitative overlay adjustment where we can deviate from the model output. Uh, with, within, we, 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 we restrict ourselves to how far we can deviate. But there's where we apply some common sense and qualitative factors in countries, uh, say, like Thailand, where we see uh, political turmoil continuing. We might take a notch off, for example, the sovereign made, uh, rating model output. So that's how we derive the individual ratings is, and I said, you know, th this crisis is causing downward pressure on our econometric sovereign rating model, but we do give due credit uh, for countries where there's an established track record of sound fiscal and policy management and where we have confidence that the public debt burdens can be brought under control over the medium term. Okay, um, Steve, stay with that theme for a little bit more because I want to ask you one um, specific question. So what you and I have worked at the IMF and whenever we did program countries, we would spend a lot of time figuring out the gross external funding requirement. I mean, that's a mouthful, but you and I know what we're talking about. It's basically a country's residual maturity debt that's falling due next year and all the um, other payments it has to make relative to its reserves. Now, we tend not to worry about the external funding needs of most Asian countries. If you go to North Asia, well endowed with reserves, current account is not a burden. And when you look at Southeast Asia or South Asia, because of the COVID crisis and a collapse in demand, imports are weak and therefore current accounts are not uh, a headache and also at low energy prices help. So with, with that lens or with that sort of data in mind, is it one area where we don't have to worry too much about next year? Yeah, you know, I think the most severe external pressures are actually in some of those lower income, lower rated um, sovereigns across Asia Pacific. Um, in the past year, we've downgraded several of those, um, most prominently Sri Lanka, uh, which we now have a triple C. It faces you know, very high external financing requirements very high annual debt payments coming due over the next four to five years against pretty low uh, foreign exchange reserve levels. We've also downgraded the Maldives, um, a, a highly tourism dependent economy, again, with very low foreign exchange reserves. And also Laos, uh, which is a country we started rating only early this year. and We've already downgraded to the triple C category. Laos has very high external debt payments coming due and very little in the way of foreign exchange earnings at the moment. So those, those you know, lower rated um, frontier market type economies are feeling high external uh, financing requirements and external financing pressures. 
But the rest of the region, you're quite right. Um, I'd agree with what you said about the bulk of the emerging markets across Asia, the likes of of Indonesia and, and even India, which, which India we do have on negative outlook. Um, things are quite fragile there, but from an external financing point of view, uh, both countries are, are doing fairly well with uh, narrow uh, or only modest current account deficits. Um, the lower oil prices certainly help India. They hurt Indonesia at the margin, but commodity prices have come back with the global recovery and demand. So that's shoring things up in Indonesia. All right, Steve, so let's stay with this fragility theme a little longer uh, beyond the issue of external finance. You know, which sovereigns are under the most ratings pressure and why? Yeah, uh, that's a good question, Tamar. So as we go into 2021, here in the Asia-Pacific region, we have now four sovereigns on negative outlook. Um, Two of them are developed market economies, uh, Australia and Japan. Uh, in both cases, it has to do with the rise in public debt as a result of the crisis and, and the outlook for the trajectory of public debt. I, I'll come back to Japan in just a moment. The other two that we have on negative outlook, uh, one is India. India is a very interesting case because it's at triple B minus the lower end of the investment grade spectrum. So if we did follow through on a downgrade for India, that would bring its rating below investment grade for the first time in um, many, many years, um, going back 14, 15 years, in fact. Um, in fact, India at triple B minus negative is one of only four triple B minus countries globally that we have on negative outlook, the, the others being Uruguay, Romania, and Colombia. And then the last um, negative outlook, the, the fourth in, across the region, is Macau, um, where the gaming sector, the you know the casinos, have been very hard hit by the pandemic. And uh, depending on the the rebound in tourism flows, and they have already opened with mainland China, so that might help them uh, into 2021. Uh, maybe I'll just say a word about Japan. Uh, we rate Japan at the A, A-flat rating level. And in the past few years, we got a lot of pushback from investors. You know, why are we so negative on Japan? It's a very wealthy, advanced economy. Um, the A rating, for example, puts Japan um, below China's rating at A+. Plus. Uh, below Taiwan at double A minus, uh, same for Korea, double A minus. Why are we so negative on Japan? Well, it really has to do with the extraordinarily high public debt level in Japan. Uh, Japan entered the crisis with the highest sovereign debt ratio of any, any sovereign we rate globally at 230%. And as a result of the crisis, we see the debt ratio rising to 260% of GDP. Well, then investors might say, well, so what? Japan can finance its deficit quite readily through a deep pool of domestic savings and interest rates are close to zero or even negative. So who cares? And, you know, that, that's a valid argument. And the Bank of Japan has pulled out all the stops um, by way of, of QE and purchases of, of Japanese government bonds. But with such a high debt burden, um, you know, we believe that eventually the laws of economics will exert themselves again. And while the health crisis is no doubt the immediate 
concern and the authorities are quite right to prioritize spending to address the immediate needs of the health crisis and the economic downturn, eventually they need to come up with a convincing strategy to address their very high public debt burden because it leaves the economy vulnerable to shocks such as natural disasters or uh, spikes eventually in interest rates. We can't rule that out. Uh, that could eventually unnerve investor sentiment and, and cause investors to flee uh, Japanese government bonds. Uh, we don't see that on the horizon, of course, but it's the possibility that that lurks uh, in the medium term is, is why we have the A rating and why we have it on negative outlook. See, this is, of course, a very critical subject for not just in the context of Japan, but for a wide range of developed and developing economies going forward, because we are seeing deficits and debts balloon. But then you have a lot of people. I remember uh, Olivier Blanchard in this year's uh, um, uh, American Economic Association speech, which was, of course, pre-COVID, made the argument that uh, we may have been too uh, conservative with uh, the, the role of public sector debt and uh, deficit in terms of fiscal dominance or holding back growth. The argument being that if you are spending the money on worthy high return projects or staving off a deep contraction, then it is totally worth it and the markets will not punish you. Uh, so you basically use the phrase, you know, laws of economics. So it seems to me that from the profession's perspective, there is a bit of a crisis of confidence on this issue that we used to think that a much lower threshold of debt would get countries in trouble. Uh, it hasn't. Do you think these are largely due to structural factors like aging and low productivity growth, which sort of puts a you know, permanent downward you know, sort of pressure or ceiling on uh, interest rates? Or do you think there are cyclical reasons and therefore we should not be so cognizant or complacent and it might actually you know, come back to haunt us? Yeah, you know, those are all very uh, valid points. And, and I think the jury is really out on some of these very interesting debates in the economics profession about whether deficits and debt really matter anymore. Um, you know, maybe I'll parse that into two pieces. Um, one is from the perspective of a rating agency. You know, again, as I said at the outset, what we're really looking at is ordinal rankings of creditworthiness and debt is one of the key variables in that calculation and that's why we're so fixated on the medium term trajectory of debt and credible policies once the coronavirus passes um, to see an unwinding of those high debt ratios uh, for the reasons i mentioned at, at the outset the second part to that is is really the economics of it, as you say. You know, are we are we in a new paradigm of structurally low interest rates for the forever or for the foreseeable future that make the kind of traditional analysis that you and I learned back at the IMF uh, somewhat less relevant today? I think the jury's out on that. Um, it's I think a more relevant question for developed market economies. Um, and I would say that it's entirely appropriate uh, under these circumstances for countries to set aside for the time being concerns about deficits and debt in order to do what's right for their near-term macro trajectories and to address the pressing needs of the health crisis. So, you know, we've seen these very large packages in Germany and in the U.S. and Japan and, and 
you know, our former colleagues at the IMF and their latest GEO are saying that countries need to be careful not to withdraw that stimulus too, too quickly. Um, you know, that, that's entirely right from a, a macroeconomic perspective, but the jury is still out, I think, over the longer term. Um, and my sense is that debt will matter over the longer term, that once the severity of the crisis passes, we're likely to see longer term interest rates rise uh, you can see it already in the yield curve and the 10-year Treasury yield, for example. Every time there's strong economic news um, on the vaccine front or, 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 or other positive news flow, you do see the 10-year yield bumping up. And, and the reason we expect uh, interest rates, even at the 10-year maturity spectrum, to stay low for the next few years is because we think central banks are going to jump in, as they have in Japan, with, with yield curve control and suppress those uh, bond yields by, by making ever-increasing uh, purchases of 10-year uh, bonds and so on. But Eventually, central banks will will probably let uh, longer term yields rise as as inflation expectations pick up. So, I guess to answer that second part of the question in terms of the economics of it, yeah, it's probably not a near term concern uh, for the, the the next few years. We are we do expect uh, central banks to pull out all the stops and keep interest rates low, but eventually we do think that interest rates are going to start to creep up and that's when the debt service burdens um, will, will begin to rise again. Um, now, what I've just said is really true for developed market economies, but it's been very interesting, as you know, Tamor, in this crisis, a number of emerging markets, central banks and governments have taken the playbook from developed economies and how they responded to the global financial crisis. Um, you know, they, they invoke sometimes that dreaded uh, modern monetary theory to say that they can monetize these deficits and it, and it doesn't matter. I think for emerging markets, they need to be much more careful uh, about investor confidence and, and going too far uh, with quantitative easing and some of the non-unconventional monetary policies. Certainly for now, they're doing it, uh, markets are taking it all in stride, but I think investors will want to see a return to, to, to more traditional monetary stances in emerging market economies as the coronavirus subsides. Steve, uh, because of what you just said, I want to take a detour to Indonesia momentarily because you did spend four years being IMF's uh, senior representative there. Um, you saw in the last few months, uh, Bank Indonesia and the Minister of Finance announced a series of measures where they would coordinate more deeply in terms of you know, keeping long-term yields uh, under caps. Uh, what's your sense of uh, that? Because that's a classic example of an emerging market economy sort of doing a shadow QE and taking a page out of the book from developed market central banks. Yeah, in, in the Asia-Pacific region, um, Bank Indonesia has really been at the forefront of this non-conventional non policy. Um, they've engaged in outright purchases of government bonds in the primary market. They announced um, earlier this year a so-called burden sharing arrangement between the government and Bank Indonesia, where Bank Indonesia um, is actually bearing the interest costs of a big chunk of the public debt and holds on its balance sheet uh, very sizable government bonds. Uh, look, our, it, it raised our eyebrows at first. 
and we did speak to the authorities and it was explained to us that you know this is an exceptional shock requiring exceptional response uh that this is all a temporary arrangement it's not going to be repeated again in 2021 and beyond um so this exceptional debt monetization and the interest burden sharing arrangement it was set up in 2020 it'll continue for a while because it's going to take some time for those bonds to mature and and you know to roll off a bank indonesia's balance sheet but the authorities have been insistent that this is something that they're not going to repeat in the future but you know tamar i think what really has driven uh indonesia in this direction relates to something that's more part of the conventional ways we do our fiscal analysis, which is Indonesia has a very low revenue ratio. This is something that the current Minister of Finance is, is uh, placing as a top priority to address. Uh, Indonesia gets something like 12 or 13% of revenue as a share of GDP. That's extraordinarily low. It's one of the, the lowest of any sovereign we rate. And as a result of that, what it means is if they took all of this uh, debt associated with the fiscal stimulus onto the government's balance sheet, their interest burden would rise. And because their revenue is so low and because they have constitutionally mandated spending allocations to very worthy causes, social causes like education and health, it would simply crowd out their spending flexibility in, in other areas. So I think the government is keen to keep its interest burden down, and that's why it's employing these unconventional policies with Bank Indonesia to shift some of those interest costs off of its own balance sheet onto the central banks. But you know, it's not sustainable to do this over the longer term, and it will eat into the capital of Bank Indonesia. And it could unnerve investor sentiment. Uh, the Bank Indonesia and the government of Indonesia have built up very strong policy credibility over the last couple of decades with their their monetary and fiscal policy frameworks, uh, but they're you know at risk now of undermining confidence if they resort to these kinds of mechanisms repeatedly in the coming years. Absolutely, and I, I share your concerns. I think countries that are blessed with reserve currencies certainly can get away with a lot more than the countries that are not. And while Indonesia does have a fairly low debt to GDP ratio, your point on revenue mobilization being inadequate is you know, very well taken. And I see parallels between India and Indonesia in that regard. Um, Steve, let's uh, sort of focus on the near term cycle a bit. Uh, from your perspective, how was the rebound shaping up? Well, you know, we're pretty confident about the growth outlook uh, from here on out across Asia Pacific. Um, you know, globally, we're also increasingly optimistic. The vaccine news um, has boosted our confidence that recoveries globally will really take, uh, take will have renewed strength and be on a stronger footing in the second half of 2021 and into 2022, we're, we're certainly in for a rough patch in the next couple of quarters uh, in Europe and the US in particular because of the rampant spread of the virus. So we do see some softness likely in the Q4 numbers this year and then going into Q1. Uh, but we think uh, we'll see a, a, a steady a pace of increase in quarterly growth momentum thereafter. Uh, we're, we're optimistic about 
the growth outlook for Asia uh, for a couple of reasons, one being China's growth rebound. Uh, China has obviously been a leader here because it was the first out of the virus. Already by the second quarter of 2020, GDP levels in China uh, had bust through to above pre-COVID levels. So China's really leading the recovery. As you know, Timur, the recovery in China has broadened out to retail spending, to services. And, and the, the takeaway for us about China is it really points to successful virus containment as a prerequisite for very strong rebounds. Uh, but China's growth is just pulling up the rest of the region through direct trade channels and also indirectly through investor sentiment. And we see global analysts pointing now to Asia as, as a you know, real strong growth performer into 2021. And we buy that. We certainly expect, um, as an aggregate, Asia's growth to be 6.8%. Uh, in 2021, that would be ahead of uh, our global growth estimate of 5.3. Uh, so we think the region is on a, on a strong footing. Uh, but it's going to take time in, in some of these non-Chinese companies for GDP levels to, to be restored to pre-COVID, uh, probably not till um, Q1 in the case of Korea, uh, Q2 in the case of, uh, say, Australia, uh, but but the second half of 2021 or even early 2022 seems more likely for several of the other hard hit Asian economies. We don't expect India's GDP level, for example, to uh, be at pre-COVID levels until the second quarter of 2022. Right. And in fact, when I think in terms of per capita real GDP levels, uh, because these countries have positive population growth rates, so like I, I think I agree with your uh, forecast on India not getting it done till the end of 2022, but on a per capita level, probably more like a 2023 situation, uh, assuming also that, you know, nothing uh, untoward were to happen between now and then. Um, Steve, we hear a lot about the risk of long-term economic scarring, uh, especially when we sort of read about uh, the U.S. and the U.K. and Europe. Um, we don't really have too much research uh, on this in the context of Asia. So what's your view? That is there a risk of long-term economic scarring from this crisis here as well? Yes, there is a risk. Um, we've done a bit of research on this uh, already for the developed economies in Asia. We've looked at Japan uh, and Australia uh, already. And, and we do, in developed markets, expect scarring on average to amount to something like shaving off uh, around a half percent uh, on headline potential growth, and perhaps even more for emerging markets. Um, we've looked in a preliminary way at India's potential growth, and we can easily see India's potential growth coming down by something like one and a half or even two percentage points over the medium term. Asia is somewhat less affected, I would say, than the potential scarring effects elsewhere around the world because the hit to labor markets has been relatively contained. Uh, so for the specific case of Japan, uh, we expect the longer term scarring to be rather minimal, uh, maybe only 0.2 percentage points on pot headline potential growth. But Japan's potential growth, which is which is also another part of the equation as we look at its uh, 
public debt burden was already very, very low. Um, and this will just take it lower. Um, so the scarring is occurring through dislocation in labor markets, which I said has not been that significant in Asia, but more pronounced in Asia has been the hit to investment. So we're gonna see lower capital stocks as a result of the crisis uh, and some scarring effects. But you know, one of the difficulties we have in communicating this to investors is that it's a bit paradoxical because when we talk about potential growth, yes, medium-term potential growth will come down as a result of the scarring effects of the crisis, but very large output gaps have emerged across economies because of the deep plunges in growth that we've seen, the contractions we've seen in 2020. And you know, the way we, we always think about this, Tamor, is that output gaps are closed over a certain number of years, say on a five or maybe at worst a 10 year time horizon. So what this means is if you're, even if you lower your estimates of potential growth, if we have very large output gaps, trend growth over the next few years as output gaps close might be quite high actually. So that's how we're looking at it in India, even though we think, potential growth might come down from say over seven to just over five, we may well see growth rates the next few years pick up to the six and a half percent range uh, because those output gaps mean higher near-term trend growth uh, in order to close those output gaps by the end of some reasonable period. Well, I think that's that's an encouraging uh, thought and I, I hope you know it sort of pans out. I also feel that in addition to just the laws of arithmetic, um, yeah, we can probably count on the export cycle, which has been disappointing for a few years now, uh, to be somewhat of a saving grace because we do see tremendous demand for home improvement and office equipment and next generation of uh, electronics products uh, across the world and Asia still being the factory of the world will probably um, benefit from that. I mean, as you can see in the last four or five months, the trade recovery has been uh, very impressive in Asia. And looking at the PMIs and the order books, I think we'll probably have a pretty good start to 2021 as well. Um, Steve, I want to talk about something sort of unrelated to this because you know you had said earlier that you know you beyond looking at fundamentals are of course focused on geopolitical dimensions. Um, now we had a big election in the U.S. about a month ago, um, and uh, I think we can safely say that Joe Biden will be the president of the United States in the third week of January. So let's talk a bit about this transition. Uh, what would that mean for Asian economies in 2021? Well, it looks like it's good news for most of Asia. Um, as we've talked to policymakers the last few years around Asia, uh, one of the biggest risk factors and headaches they would talk about was the unpredictability of U.S. policy, um, particularly on the trade front and the U.S.-China uh, trade tensions. And it's very clear uh, by Biden's not only track record in the Obama administration as vice president, but more recently um, in his policy pronouncements and some of the key appointments he's made, uh, that a more traditional approach um, to trade tensions will unfold um, when Biden is in office. And that's good for sentiment around the region. So it's going to be a more multilateral, more predictable approach to the US-China uh, trade and technology relationship. 
we're under no illusions, however, that those tensions between China and the U.S. are going to go away. Um, it's a deeply bipartisan sentiment in the U.S. that the previous patient approach with China failed to yield results. So we do think the heat's going to be kept up. But Biden has already signaled a, an approach of wanting to bring in um, traditional U.S. allies into the mix. Uh, and I think we can say goodbye to the period of waking up to tweets that uh, cause tariff and trade policy to veer off in unpredictable um, uh, directions. So this is positive already for Asia. And then prospects for fiscal stimulus, you know, notwithstanding what it does for the public debt burden in the U.S. And I should mention, we, we even have the U.S. Uh, AAA on negative outlook as, as, as well because of the run-up in public debt and our concerns about policy paralysis um, in, in the U.S. because of uh, you know, the, 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 the mixed um, uh, party uh, governance in, in the U.S. Has, has led to stalemates. But it's increasingly looking like we'll see a stimulus we expect of around a trillion dollars um, going into the first quarter of 2021. That will have positive spillovers to the region's export demand that you flagged. And also the, all of the investment in, in green technology and reducing carbon emissions uh, could put producers of those technologies across Asia in a good spot. So overall, um, it, it, it's quite good for Asia. And the signing of RCEP, you know, some would say it was largely symbolic um, in that it it brings kind of more of a multilateral approach to trade policy back in Asia. Uh, but but it could be more fundamental. We'll have to see. You know, much of Asia has bilateral trade agreements and low tariff rates um, within the region already, but this generalizes those bilateral um, agreements and, and should be quite positive for supply chains around Asia and, and for many of the economies. So since you mentioned supply chain, I just want to, uh, toward the sort of cap our discussion off, ask you about RCEP, which uh, on paper looks like a very large deal, massive scale, uh, and potentially uh, beneficial for the supply chain in Asia. Uh, do you share the sort of on-print enthusiasm or you think that this is not that big a deal? Well, we have yet to do any quantitative analysis on this, so I should be cautious. But I, I think, you know, I would say the consensus so far is that it's not such a big deal because as I mentioned, tariff rates are already low and there are a number of bilateral trade agreements um, already in effect. But I think it does have the potential to be more meaningful than that because it's going to make uh, supply chains, it's going to make it much easier for individual businesses and sectors to benefit from the lower tariffs when, when you generalize um, these tariff privileges across 15 economies uh, rather than just on a bilateral uh, relationship. And it also reduces the potential for trade diversion within Asia uh, that can be harmful to welfare. So anything that, that broadens and generalizes um, the, the trade preferences, the lower tariff rates, uh, should be positive for, for supply chains and, and profits and ultimately regional welfare. Uh, so I think it's probably there's more to it than meets the eye. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that there are a couple of areas where I think there are obvious advantages. You know, China did not have FTAs with Korea, Japan, and this sort of uh, helps them converge in that area. And for the smaller economies in ASEAN, like um, Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, I think this could be a shot in the arm, uh, again, in bringing down some of those tariffs and making them equally attractive as core ASEAN countries for investors with the supply chain in mind. Uh, Steve, uh, it's been great having you on Kopi Time and doing a tour of Asia with the context of the Western world and pandemic here. So I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tamor. Good luck to you. Thanks. Thanks to our listeners too. Kopi Time was produced by Martin Taki, Daisy Sharma, and Violet Lee also provided additional assistance. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 38 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.